All right, guys. Well, I want to tell you a story. It was last fall, last fall during the school year, and I was cramming for an assignment. Okay, I was, I was coming down to the last minute where I was about to turn in this assignment for my class. I go actually here, uh, CBI, Compass Bible Institute. I take Bible classes. Um, and I was completing assignment for, um, for my professor, John Goodrich, in this class. And I was coming down to the wire, and I just finished it. And at the same time it's due, it also class starts at the same time. So I'm at home, I realize I'm late, and I'm like, oh no, I have to get ready, I have to go really, really fast. And so I get ready for class, and I, and I get in my car, and I take off, and I get here to church, right? I get to my school right over across the street, and I'm like, oh man, I'm already like 10 minutes late. Like I'm, I'm embarrassed, my face is like red flush, it's not good. And I get to the door, there's some key cards that you need to get inside, right? So I reach for my key card in my pocket, and it's not there. And I'm like, oh no. And there's these big glass windows too, to CBI, so you can see my professor like teaching to the class. They're like, oh, whoa, whoa, yeah. And I'm like, and they're like, oh no, what am I going to do? And I'm sitting there for a minute, just like perplexed on what am I going to do? How am I going to do this? And so... I end up texting one of my classmates. You guys know him, Jose. He's a leader here in the narrow. He's preached on here a few times. And I had to text him and ask him to get out of his seat and come open the door for me. Like just so embarrassed. And he gets to the door and he opens the door and he's like, dude, and he just gives me this look. Um, And I get to class and I open the door, I follow him in and all my classmates are just look at me like that. And I'm like, oh no, oh no, man. What am I gonna do? And my professor looks up at me, and I'm just so embarrassed, so embarrassed at this point. And he looks back down and keeps teaching what he's been teaching to my classmates. And there was a lot of losses that happened during this time. Tons of losses that happened during this time. One, I was super embarrassed. I missed out on tons of information. And the information that I was even taking in was actually missed out upon because I didn't get the introduction to the class. I didn't really know what we were talking about. He was just giving information for me. And so I'm trying to catch up and take these notes while he's saying new things at the same time, trying to comprehend two things that I don't understand at once, right? I missed out on a lot of things. And I'm going to be telling you guys something today that if you miss out on, you will not experience this essential characteristic to understanding God. This characteristic is very expansive, very large in nature, This concept is even essential and primary to simply just being a Christian. Today, as I said earlier, guys, we are talking about the holiness of God. The holiness of God. And without knowing God and what what properly responding to him looks like, you you will not be able to live for the glory of God. See, with a humble recognition and a appreciation for his grace, you will then be able to do what is pleasing to him. And so during this time, guys, I want you to do one big grand thing. I want you, you need to be amazed by the holiness of God and surrender in response every aspect of your life to him. And so in light of that, let's turn our eyes to our passage today. Some of you already have it opened, but let's look at Isaiah 6. We're going to Isaiah 6 today. Isaiah was a particular prophet who uh, had an encounter with God, was saved by God, and then became uh, a speaker on his behalf, talking to the rest of 
um, his people, talking to the rest of the world about what God is doing and what God is going to do. Isaiah was also very, very cool because in his writings, he displays every detail of what God's going to do from creation all the way until the end in Revelation. Very, very interesting. And so let's read here. Let's see what he says. We're just going to read verses 1 to 4. But before we jump into this passage here, verses or Isaiah 6, 1 to 4, there's something that I want you to keep in mind as we're reading this passage, as we're going through this. Okay, I'm going to give you point number one. You need to think seriously about the holiness of God. Very, very important that we think very seriously and respectfully, and we take it and we consider it well, the holiness of God. I'm going to read here in Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 4, just for now. It reads this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And so you see in this vision here, there is something insane happening. And Isaiah, a mere human, just like you and I, is witnessing this amazing moment. But if we're going to really understand what's happening in here, what is God revealing himself to be? What is this attribute? What is this characteristic that God is showing Isaiah? And in reality, as we're reading this passage, showing us, right? That's his holiness. So the question is, what does it mean for God to be holy? I'm going to give you guys a definition that I wrote down. I'd love for you guys to write it down too. I'll say it slowly. What does it mean for God to be holy? God's unique and grand set-apartness that makes him deserving of glory. I'll say it again. God's unique and grand set-apartness that makes him deserving of glory. God is absolutely different than us in two large regards. One, in the capacity in which he is. So like, we can be nice to people sometimes, right? We can be compassionate to people sometimes, right? We can be angry. We can be all these different things. Those things, in some sense, those characteristics, those personality traits, those attributes that we have, they all come from God. And God is infinitely set apart in how much more he is those things. So he is infinitely more than the things that we are. We're created in his image, right? However, there's also unique things about God that completely sets him apart from us. Like how holy he is, how perfect he is, how powerful and how all-seeing and all-knowing God is, set apart in that way as well. And all of those things are deserving of giving him glory. So let's look at this passage. Let's see what happens, right? So first off, I just want you to see what's going on in this passage. I want you guys to see really what's happening here. You see Isaiah being in this 
golden temple, right? He's inside the temple and he's seeing all of these beautiful gold walls, all of the trinkets in there, all the lights in there. They're made of gold. It's beautiful in there. Everything that's, that's made in there that's woven is these pretty purple, pretty red, pretty blue uh, woven uh, clothings in there or cloths. And then everything is just sparkling with gold. It's a massive room. It's so pretty. It's, it's so cool in there, right? But all of a sudden, there's this vision where he sees the Lord sitting on his throne, right? This, this God, this being that's high and lifted up, right? How awesome is that? We see that while he's in the temple and God is so high and lifted up, meaning that there's nothing higher than him. Not just in a sense in which like, like distance level, he's taller, not anything like that, but in a sense where there's nothing more powerful than him. There's nothing that rivals him. We'll get into that later. But we see that this God is high and lifted up. Another way of expressing this is what it says right after, how the train of his robe is now filling this temple. When we think of a train, what is a train, right? When you see a, a king having a robe, right, and it's coming down off of him, and it's just like barely touching the ground as he's walking, right? That's the train, that's the entrails of a king's robe. Or maybe another aspect of this is like when a lady wears a dress and it goes all the way down to the floor and the dress is almost touching the floor, right? That's the train of their dress. And so we see here God, right? The train of his robe is coming down and just the end of it is filling the entire temple, right? This great God with this amazing robe signifying how glorious and how amazing and how high and lifted up this God is, is now filling the temple, but then this really interesting part happens where Isaiah sees these things called the seraphim. What are the seraphim, right? Well, just to start out, these are angelic creatures, right? There are these holy angels, right, that are screaming and singing songs around God saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. But if you study this word and, and you study these things out the Bible, throughout the Bible, you see that they're also called these burning ones. They're set on fire. They're not hurting. They're not being killed, anything like that. But the, in their nature, they're burning and they're flying around. These amazing creatures that look so cool, that are so awesome in their nature by themselves. But then you see the seraphim where they're also decked out in, in three pairs of wings, right? They have six wings in total, but they're limiting themselves and only flying with one of the pairs because in respect to God, they're covering their faces and they're covering their feet with the first two and the, and, the, and the last two set of wings that they have. And they're flying with the middle two, right? Super cool beings. And these beings in themselves are amazing. They're so cool. These burning ones, right? Singing songs to God, praising him for who he is, which I hope in a second that we'll see that we should be just like the seraphim and praising and honoring and giving glory to God but these things in particular are so glorious. However, they're the ones covering their faces, right? It's just unspeakable how, about the, how cool these seraphim are, but they're the ones covering their faces because they are in light of a God that is so much more amazing than them, so much more great, so much more grand than them that they have to cover their heads. They have to cover their feet. You see them scream out holy three times, right? Signifying how holy and how high and lifted up and how grand this God is. And then furthermore, seeing how they say that, that his glory is filling the whole earth. 
Sometimes people take this part of the passage and say, well, that means that the inanimate objects, the trees, right, the, the wall here um, is giving glory to God, right? Like speaking glory to God, right? And obviously that doesn't make much sense, right? However, what this is signifying here is that things that are awesome in nature, that you can look at and go, wow, you go on a family trip and you see the mountains, you go, wow, those are so beautiful. Those are so cool, right? You go to the beach and you see these beautiful waves, right? It's not about giving glory to those things, right? But they show that if there is a creation, there's a creator. If there's a beginning to all of this, there's a beginner, right? We see that God gets glory throughout all of the earth because he made it all. And that's why he's so deserving of glory. This God is absolutely deserving of being looked at and being praised. When we think of the idea of what does glory mean, it means we are giving some sort of honor and respect that we think highly of that thing. We think well of that thing. That's what it means to give glory. And we're supposed to be giving God glory. But then in Isaiah's point of view, right, all of the foundations of this temple are shaking. The room is shaking, right? All of the coals from the altars are starting to build up with smoke. The whole, all, a bunch of smoke is starting to fill the temple, right? He can't see anything, but at the same time, he's seeing this glorious light figure sitting on a throne high and lifted up. You see these seraphim flying around, screaming and singing songs to God. This, this vision is, is insane, and I'm going to sit here today, I'm going to stand here today and try and be able to show you a sliver of God's holiness. And I'm going to fail to show you God's holiness because of how truly holy God is. And my hope for you today is that you're going to be able to look at all these things and see, wow, God is so holy and walk away responding to the holiness of God. But when we think about these, these seraphim, right, and how they give God glory, what are they doing? What are they doing? We'll open up to Psalm 29, okay? Psalm 29. I'm going to read verses 1 through 4, and we're going to see what we are supposed to do, our right responses, when we view in sight the holiness of God. Psalm 29, verses 1 to 4. I'll read it here. It says, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. And so we see here that, that this idea of ascribing, right? It's giving glory to, where we are giving glory to something, right? In this case, giving glory to the Lord. These heavenly beings, the whole earth, right? Us in particular, we should be in need to be giving glory to God. So everything in this case that's sentient, right? Everything that's even created shows off the glory of God, should be giving him, should be ascribing, as this verse says, the glory of God. But look further in verse 3 of this passage. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. Thinking about creation when God, was, God the Spirit was over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. And so we see that God's voice is like thundering. And he speaks in this great way and so great that he starts making things appear all throughout creation. That's how grand and great this God is. Like, so cool. Imagine if like, I could just say things with my, with my words and with my mouth and then things just come alive. 
Like, what if I, like, my favorite food is Cafe Rio. And I was like, all right, guys, Cafe Rio, here we come. Boom, Cafe Rio, right? All that good food right there. Or um, I don't know if you guys got shakes today or not, uh, hanging out there. But what if we wanted more shakes? I'm like, boom, shakes. <laughs> tons, of, ton, tons of drinks, right, we could enjoy. But we can't do those things. But God can. And we see how amazing and awesome this God is in creating all of these things just through his speaking. And in light of this, what, how should we respond? What should we do? Well, first off, we should be amazed. We should be amazed that there's nothing bigger, there's nothing better, and there's nothing greater than God himself. And see, nothing can rival God in his position of power. Some people think that they can. Some people think that they're better than God. Some people think that, that God is greater and God is more awesome. Some people think... Um, that they can twist God's arm into doing something they want him to do because they're doing a good thing. That is not how God operates. God operates in a way that is full of glory and majesty, and no one can trick him into doing something. No one can force him into doing something. There is no being that can even rival God in power, regardless of who says that he can or tries to. No one can rival God. And see, this is something that we should look at this amazing God, nothing bigger, nothing better than him, and go, wow, God, you are the most amazing thing ever. I could compare to any experience, anything, any joy that I've ever had in my life, but God, you are so much better, so much more amazing than those things. Nothing in this life is going to show you that it's better than God in any sort of way or form. We should also remember that this holy God is also involved in your life very well so. It says in Jeremiah 23, verses 23 and 24, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? He's speaking rhetorically, right? Asking a question. Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? And so we see here how God is near, right? God is not far from us. He's very close to us. And furthermore, how God sees everything and that no one can hide from him at all. And so in light of these things, in light of hearing this vision and, and seeing this amazing um, vision that Isaiah sees, right? We should have a, a desire to follow after God because of how awesome he is. We should want to have a relationship with God, not putting him off to the side, not doing any of those things, because there's nothing in your life that you could even esteem higher than God. And sometimes we push God aside. Sometimes we reject him. And I want to make it clear that when we do those things, which I admit we all do, I do sometimes, which is wrong of me and my brokenness and my sinfulness, right? But we have to recognize in those moments when we do that, that we are not rightly understanding the God that is ever so near to us, ever so close to us. We need to grasp that. We need to always remember that and be giving reverence and respect and honor to this God of glory. I think sometimes we can see, I don't want to read the Bible. I don't want to read the Bible this morning. I'd rather do something else. Maybe you're not thinking that, but you're feeling that, and then you don't do it, right? You're not recognizing how holy and awesome and amazing this God is. Sometimes you don't want to go in prayer. Sometimes you want to go do your own thing rather than what your friends want to do. Whatever it might be in regards to showing love and respect and honor towards others, even your parents, right? You are forgetting about the grand 
respect and the grand holiness, or the grand um, respect and reverence you should have in light of God's holiness. This is all amazing and it's all wonderful. But how does Isaiah respond to this? Because there's a response in verse 5. Let's go back at our passage. Look at Isaiah 6, verse 5. And let's see what Isaiah says in response to this vision. Often we look at God's creation and go, whoa, that's amazing. And we too should look at God because he's the one that made it all and go, wow, God, you are so, so awesome. How great are you? And of course, Isaiah does give a response, does give a response of astonishment, but it's not in a positive way. It's in quite of a negative way, actually. And this is how we should rightly respond to God. But check it out. Isaiah 6, verse 5, it reads this. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Man, so you see Isaiah here. He is freaked out. He is scared beyond measure, right? He is so scared, in fact, that he has just literally lost it. And he recognizes that him and the people around him, everyone else that he's ever met, is in the same position that he is in at that moment. And so when we think about what it looks like to be before God, right? Thinking about what it looks like to be in heaven, because right now we're here on earth, right? And I'm guessing that some of you are thinking, oh, one day I'm going to go to heaven. Or one day my hope is, is that I'll be in heaven, right? In the holy presence of God in this moment, just like Isaiah. He wasn't in heaven particularly, he was in the temple, but there was this vision where it was connecting heaven and this temple, right? And so when we see that, how should we respond? What will be our response? Well, whether we like it or not, for point number two, go ahead and write it down. Fear God because of your sinfulness. Fear God because of your sinfulness. When we're thinking about Isaiah, it's very important to glean from Isaiah. There's a lot of ways in which you can glean from others, in which you have gleaned from others. For example, your parents, right? Most of the things that you do today is because your parents taught you. They taught you how to eat at the dinner table, right? They protected you from not choking on your food. They also, furthermore, told you how to use even the restroom. Like, when we think about things like that, like, your parents have helped you and you've gleaned from them so much knowledge that you use every single day. You need to be gleaning from others in this type of regard. Think of leaders, right? Your leaders here in the narrow. They love you guys. They care for you guys. And they want to show you what it looks like to be a Christian. And you should rightly look at that and rightly respond to that. And so even Bible characters in the story, God lines up and reveals these stories to people like us so we can see and learn from or avoid, right, how certain people in the Bible, in these stories, should be responding or should not be responding. And we see Isaiah here and, and how he rightly responds to God in a right sense. So let's look at that. Let's get in Isaiah's shoes and let's see what he's seen. Okay, we're going to jump in Isaiah's shoes for a second. In the temple, we're in there, okay? Not literally, but we're thinking about, okay, what is he seeing? He's seeing this God that's high and lifted up. So first off, God is supreme. God is absolutely supreme. He's a supreme being. Furthermore, he's a supreme being that will not tolerate any level of sin. No sort of unclean thing will be in his holy presence. That cannot work, 
right? For a God to be perfectly holy, right? To have things around him that are unclean, right? In, in nature, for him to dwell and have fellowship with things that are evil or unclean or impure, right? God's not going to have that. And furthermore, that's because he is holy beyond comprehension, Again, guys, I cannot comprehend to you how holy and how grand this God is. We could sit here our entire lives trying to study and figure out, okay, how holy is God? How holy really is God? And we could spend our whole lives doing that, doing that one sole thing, and we would fail in trying to comprehend the holiness of God. Seriously, that's how holy God is. So when Isaiah is freaking out, right, what is God seeing? When, what is God's perception of Isaiah? Well, he sees two things, two main things at least. He sees that he's an ordinary human, just like you and I. If, he's really, if Isaiah was really, you know, buff, he could probably lift a few hundred pounds, right? But probably not, probably not in this case, right? He's an ordinary human just like you guys. He had hair, he had arms, right? He had legs, he had a body, all these things, right? He was a normal human, ordinary, just like you and I. But also, he was another thing. He was a sinful human being, just like you and I, just like you guys, just like me, right? He was not a perfect person. He did evil. He did wrong. Sometimes it was accidental. Sometimes it was, it was intentional, just like us, right? And he freaks out in this way, and you see that Isaiah in this moment was thinking that God's holy nature was about to wipe him out, literally, when Isaiah says, woe is me for I am lost, that word, the original language, when you interpret that word, it means destroyed, right? Or being destroyed or about to be destroyed, however you use the word. And so when Isaiah is saying, for I am lost, he literally is fearing in that moment that he's going to be wiped off the face of the planet because he's in the holy presence of God. I mean, he's terrified. There is not a moment in his life where he will be more terrified other than in that moment. And so when we think about Isaiah and his sinful nature, we have to recognize that we are also sinful just like Isaiah. He was ordinary and, and not perfect just like you and I. I hope no one in this room is claiming that I'm a perfect person. Raise your hand if you think you're a perfect person in this room. Good, good, that's good because we are all not perfect people, Right? Turn with me to Isaiah, or sorry, Psalm 53. Turn, to me, turn with me to Psalm 53. I want to show you a passage that we can see what God thinks about our current state in nature. Really important when it comes to figuring out how we are rightly to respond to God. Psalm 53, verses, verses 1 to 3, I'll read it here. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. They are corrupt, doing abominable iniquity. That's a, that's a big phrase right there. There is none who does good. God looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand who seek after God. That basically means like, so you're here for a reason, right? Because you want to seek God, right? And technically that's God helping you, right? Coming, getting you to a place like this, right? Opening your Bible every morning, God helping you in you opening your Bible, right? However, in this passage, it's saying that those who seek God like without God's help. So if God was completely subtracted from our lives right now, right? And he didn't help us at all in any sort of regard. That's asking the question of 
who would seek after God. Look at verse 3. What does it say? They have all fallen away. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Not even one. And so we see how all of us, every single one of us, even me, I'll admit it, that we are just like Isaiah. And furthermore, how Isaiah is just like us. We're all sinners. We're all sinners before a holy God. All of us are. But what's God going to do in light of that? This holy God, is he just going to leave it alone? Is he, does he care? This is a God, this holy, perfect God who has perfect sense of justice. Is he going to care about what we do in our sinful state? Colossians 3, 5 through 6 says this, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, of these, the wrath of God is coming. And so in light of the, some of those words there, I'd love to break it down and see where we all match up, and I'll, I'll do it with you guys. We can do a test and see where we match up in regards to this passage. I'm going to ask you guys a few questions. I'll ask you for myself. Let's answer it together with a raise of hands, okay? Have you ever done something evil? Yeah, I'll admit that, right? I've done that. That's obvious, right? We've done things that are evil. Okay, let's go furthermore. Have you ever been discontent or wanted something that wasn't yours, right? Maybe you saw a car and you like you you guys thought, wow, that car is really nice. That's so cool, right? Or furthermore, maybe there was um, someone who had a set of baseball cards that you thought was so cool, right? Then maybe there was a lady wearing a certain particular dress that you thought, wow, she looks really pretty, right? Or um, something furthermore, like you wish that you were somewhere because you saw that your friends were in that place. You're like, oh, I just really want to be there right now, right? You're envious that you would rather be there and trade spots with someone or have that thing that someone else has at their disadvantage. I do that sometimes. I absolutely do that sometimes, and that's wrong of me to do. And I hope that we see that we're all, we all do that in certain moments. Or maybe furthermore, have you ever wanted something more than God? Maybe you're supposed to read your Bible in the morning, right? And you decided, hey, I don't want to, or you at least feel that way. Raise your hand. Have you ever wanted something in a moment more than God? I admit that. I've definitely 100% done that before. Or maybe you read something in God's word, you actually get in his word, and you read something, you go, oof, I don't really like this person. Like, do I really need to do that? Are you telling me that I have to forgive this person when they've treated me so poorly? Are you serious? I don't know if I can do that, right? Have you guys ever felt that way before or done that before, right? Or treated someone unfairly knowing that that was wrong to do because they treated you unfairly? It says in Galatians 5 and in the verse we just looked at, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And so I say all of these things, guys, to put it clearly for you guys, to say it honestly, just to be honest in looking at God's true, real word and seeing that we should be fearful that we are not worthy to be in the presence of God, just like Isaiah. We should be fearful, guys. We need to do something about this. And that if we don't do something about this, then that punishment that you and I and everyone deserves will be on us. And to put it as clearly as possible, we should be uncomfortable. We should be uncomfortable with our sin. We should be uncomfortable with our sin nature 
Because if we don't deal with that before we meet God, we're doomed. We are doomed. Well, Luke, I don't want to deal with that. I do not want to deal with that. That sounds incredibly scary. Why are you telling me these things? I thought I'd come here to learn about God's love. What's this about God's wrath and God's holy nature? This is who God is, guys. And this is something that we need to deal with about who God is. You need to know your condition. And hopefully you do now that we've talked about it. And I hope that you feel the heaviness of how great God is, not just by being awestruck, which is good, right? But also by realizing that, wow, God is so great. I am so scared because we are sinners in sight of this holy God. And we deserve this judgment. For some of you, this is the point where you just turn your ears off, right? Where you just shut down and you think, that's not real. How could a, how could a reality like that be real, right? You think, this is too scary. I don't want to deal with this. I'm, I don't want to think about this. And you just completely shut off your ears. And it may be a scary thing, and it's true that it is scary. But if I left this sermon right here and I prayed and I let you guys out the door right now, see you later, I get why you would feel so hopeless, why you would feel so lost. We have a right to feel hopeless and lost in light of this, of this information, just like Isaiah did. But let's look back at our passage, guys. Let's look at how God responds to Isaiah being terrified of him, realizing how low and lost and destroyed he's about to be. So look at Isaiah, Isaiah 6, verses 6 and 7. Let's look back at our passage Let's see how God responds. Isaiah 6, verses 6 and 7. I'll read it here. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched, he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. I know there's a lot of weird details in there. You're like, what, what are the tongs? How did this guy not die with this burning coal, glowing coal touching his lips? Why did he place it on his lips? Like, what's going on here, right? But I want to give you the gist, before we jump into all that, of what God does here through this seraphim, sending this seraphim down. The gist of it is that God responds to Isaiah's acceptance of his sinful state by grace and mercy. And see, Isaiah responds to God, God's holiness in particular, in a deliberate submission. And see, I want you guys to respond in the same way. I want you guys to be amazed by God to the point where you submit to him. And so for point number three, for those who turn their ears off, for those who struggle with this, for those who have a hard time, for point number three, submit to God and trust in his grace. Trust in his grace. I know this is the part where we can get confused and wonder, how does this actually look? This is a scary, foreign, particular thing to think about that we don't often like to think about. So how do we rightly go about this? Well, first, let's jump into this, this last two verses and let's see what's going on here. So you see the seraphim, right? Which is a servant of God, right? Is obviously sent down by God. They don't do anything unless God tells them to do something because they're obedient, because they're perfect in nature. They come down, right? And they come into the temple, this golden room that's filled with smoke, 
God's robe is training through here, right? See Isaiah and be in his shoes for a second, right? And the seraphim goes to one of these altars, right? So in the Old Testament, there was these things called altars, right? These altars were these areas where they would come and they would burn their uh, precious animals, right? Not because they were just sick and twisted, nothing like that, but because God said, hey, if you sacrifice something to me that's important to you, then I will, I will forgive you. I will wipe away your sin for a time being. That's how the Old Testament worked. Today, in our day, we have a sacrifice, right? Which is Jesus Christ. Jesus, God himself, coming down in the form of man, dying on the cross for us. He is the living sacrifice, as he's called in Hebrews. And so we see that during this time, they would sacrifice animals. But during our day, we have an ultimate sacrifice that lasts for forever. And then it doesn't run out of a certain amount of sins, right? We have Jesus paying for our sin in full if you're one of his people, right? And so you see that he goes to this altar and he picks up one of these glowing, burning coals, right? Just like the things that you would see on a barbecue and go, if I touch that, I'm probably going to get third degree burns, right? Have you ever seen someone really burn badly on their arm or somewhere, right? And it's just like a nasty injury, right? Like, think about Isaiah for a second as he's coming with the burning coals, like, I would be so scared. But he touches his lips, and he's not burned, right? He's not burned at all. And instead, the angel, the seraphim, or the seraph, responds saying, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. So we see that God, or we see that Isaiah's guilt is completely taken away, but then furthermore, right, his sin our sinful state, the thing that, we, that God has a huge problem with, with, is finally taken away from Isaiah. What is that? What does atonement mean? Right? Well, atonement is someone paying for someone else's sins and the result of their sins being completely taken away. And so in our case, right, God atones for his people. Right? It doesn't remove the fact that we are natural sinners. Right? Christians aren't these perfect, high-mighty people. Right? Far from it, actually. We are low people, right? We recognize our sin, right? And, but what God does is he effectively puts all of the wrong that we have done, are doing, and will forever do in this earthly life, and he takes it away. He takes the guilt that would come from your sin away. He covers it. That's what it means to atone. It means to cover something. And in a biblical sense, a biblical atonement is to cover your sin, and so we see how atonement in our day is Jesus Christ paying for and taking away our punishment for the, sin, for the sin that we do in putting all of the wrath of God onto himself and paying the price completely for, on, completely for us out of his love for us. That also means that now we have a security that for those who are saved in Christ, those who have rightly responded to God, which we'll get in just a second here, are saved and they are secure to go to heaven. Put it this way. They're seen worthy in the eyes of God. They're seen worthy of being in the presence of a holy, perfect God. That's what, that's what we become if we become Christians, right? Turn with me to Isaiah 57. Turn with me to Isaiah 57. We see this awesome passage where the same author seeing this vision, right? He kind of explains further about the nature of what just happened to him. And of course, he's not talking about that exact point in time of what happened to him, but he's explaining or he's revealing what God wants to reveal to us. 
through how one can be in the presence of God as a broken sinner. A person in a sinful state being in the grand holiness of God. Isaiah 57 verse 15, verse 15 says this, For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly, and to receive the heart of the contrite. Like, just check that out for a second. Look at the passage again. See where God says he's the one that's dwelling in this high and lofty place. Whereas it says in the vision that we read a second ago, how he's high and lifted up, right? But then furthermore, he says, and also with him who is contrite and lowly in spirit. So you're telling me that there's a way that we sinful beings can be in a holy presence of God forever in heaven with him? What? How does that work? Okay, what is being lowly and what's being contrite? What what are those things? Well, when we think about being lowly in spirit, right, it basically means humble, to be humble, to be made low, where you recognize that you are not this person that's worthy of glory and honor and praise, how you are this low creature before this holy God, and you recognize that you don't deserve anything good other than the things that God has made you to be, right? You're, you're made in the image of God, right? So you should be considered as someone who is precious because you're made in the image of God. But without God, right, there's nothing good about us, not even one, as the psalm we read earlier. And so we see here how God will accept those to come into heaven who are lowly, just like Isaiah, just like all the Christians that are out there in their thinking before this holy God, in their living. Furthermore, what is contrite mean? Really helpful word. It means humiliated. It means lying crushed. That's what it means, right? The idea of don't look at me. Don't look at me. I'm gross. Don't look at me, right? I'm not saying here that you should be viewing yourself in such a way where you are like the spawn of the earth and that no one should like you, no one should love you, right? I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that in light of a holy God, our sinful nature, we should be humiliated by our sinful nature before God. We should recognize that. And so in having a countenance of, like, of that, in having a, a type of um, attitude of being humble before God, right? Being humiliated by your sin before God. God says, those people are going to dwell with me in the high, in the holy place. And so what you can see is when God promises that, also with him, this is where I dwell, right? That's a promise in some sense, right? And then he says, also with him who is lowly and contrite, right? He's promising that for those who are that way, they're going to be that way. They're going to be locked in, secured, right? That looks like us seeing our need for a savior. It looks like us seeing our, in, in humility and in humiliation, seeing that I need God's help and going to God. And where do we see that? We see Jesus. We see in Romans 6.23 how the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life from our Lord, through our Lord, Jesus Christ. See your need for a Savior. See that very clearly in regards to our sinful state. And so we see here that God makes this grand sacrifice. 
It says in Romans 5, 8 and 9, it says, But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? We see here where it shows how it's really hard thing to do to sacrifice your life for someone, right? Someone that's great, someone that you care about and you esteem highly. That's hard to do on its own. But how much more is it in sacrificing your life for someone who's done wrong to you? And see, when we sin, we're doing direct wrongdoing to God. But God, in his good love, in his graciousness, says regardless of who you are, if you come before me, recognizing your state before me, you see that you're in need of me, which is what you, your, your state is, my state is, all of our states is, God promises that he can save you from it, that he can, as he, as he did to Isaiah, atone, cover his sin. This is the love of God. And what's amazing about this is that when we see God's love, right, in light of his holiness, See, I can't, I can't sit here today and show you and try and get you to comprehend the full scope of God's holiness. But in light of that, us being sinners, if God shows us love and mercy, it has to be at the same level, the same extent in which his holiness is. You know what that means? It means that just in a sense in which God's holiness is infinite and inexpressible, so is his love for you. So is his love for you. It's, his love isn't small, isn't an appeasement, right? It's great, it's huge. And so humbly accept your position before God by recognizing that you are a sinner that's worthy of punishment, but that God is gracious in promising that those who are lowly, those who are humble, those who are humiliated by their sin and go to God in response of that, that he's going to save them because he loves everyone and he wants to save everyone. He desires that. And so I want you to believe that God is fully capable of being able to save anyone. But I want everyone to look at me for a second. Pastor Jacob does this. I think it's helpful. You guys need to hear this. Look at me, okay? God isn't just capable of saving anyone. He's capable of saving you. You person in particular. Student. That God desires to have a personal relationship with you, cares for you, loves you, and wants you to come to him, lowly in spirit and contrite. He can and he wants to save you. And you need to know that, student. You need to know that, narrow student person. You need to know that this God is a good God and is capable of saving you. And in light of that, guys, we should have no fear when we humbly come to God. I present all these things to you, hoping that you'll rightly respond to this great holiness of God. But I fear that this may be just another time that passes by, another time that we just run from it and we don't want to deal with it. And there was a woman like this. Her name was Maya Gebira. She was a professional surfer and she was really excited to, to get in this competition. So she signs up for the competition. She's professional, so she gets in, right? And she rides this massive wave, right? And she's having fun. She loves riding waves. She's been doing it most of her life, right? And she's not caring too much about the dangers that she's in. And she's coming down this wave, this massive wave, 
right? And she's hitting a few bumps going the way down, and she hits this one bump that sends her flying into the air, right? And so at this point, her surfboard and her are completely in the air, just falling straight down. And she smacks into the water, right? She looks up, and there's this massive wave that's coming in and crashing on her. The wave hits her, and she breaks her fibula. If you know what that is, it's this bone right here on your body, right? Completely just breaks. And she said, and I quote, I was on my back looking straight up, and I saw the wave crash on top of me. It pushed me underwater, but I popped back up again. Still unaware I'd broken my ankle when, and broken my leg, when the next wave crashed on me, it felt like I literally got hit by a truck. It even ripped off my, ripped off my life jacket. I was so oxygen-deprived, I knew I was going to black out, I couldn't see anything. Thankfully, this woman survived this encounter, right? And she sustained great injury, but also she called this a near-death experience for her. And I think something can be said about waves and, and, and seeing the glory of these waves, seeing, the, seeing how great these waves are, seeing how when a wave is coming at you, right, you're like, wow, that is so cool. That wave is monstrous. That thing is so awesome. It's not sitting in your room, right? This huge wave with force. But also you can be scared because it's coming and barreling towards you, right? And you can get really hurt by it. And if you're smart, you're going to respond by getting out of the way. You're going to get out of the water. You're going you're gonna to dive low so the wave will come over you, right? And sometimes, like, you don't look at that wave like it's very dangerous. And this lady didn't, and she paid for it. She paid the consequences. And see, sometimes, guys, this is how we treat God in his holiness. We aren't often amazed by the holiness of God, by how grand in this grandeur of our Lord, the Lord of hosts, we aren't fearful and cautious of God and his wrath barreling towards you, and we don't deal with it. We think nothing of it. So I want to encourage you today to be smart and to deal with that. Go to God and submit your whole life to him. That's what repentance means, right? It's saying that my lifestyle, it's his. The way that I'm living my life right now, it's bowed to him and his word, right? My entire life, the purpose for why I'm living is now for God. I do all things to the glory of God. I am going to be a Christian for the rest of my life because I want to love and honor and serve and be with God forever. This holy, amazing, infinitely loving God. And then you trust this God in, in that commitment saying, I am going to trust you because of what you've done for me. You showed me this infinite love and I'm going to trust in you now. All of, all of I am is yours, and my lifestyle, it's yours. The way that I'm living, it's yours. My whole life and everything of who I am, I identify with Christ. I identify for the one that's paid and atoned for my sins. I trust in Christ, and I submit to Christ. Do that today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for um, just showing us your word today, Lord. Thank you so much, Lord, that we can see how infinitely loving you are. God, that in light of you being infinitely loving, it shows, God, how infinitely holy you are. I pray that we would see your love, Lord. I pray that in light of our sinful nature, we should be terrified, but also put at peace knowing there's a way out. I pray, God, that today the people here who are um, 
confused about these topics would talk to them with a leader, talk to them with someone that is trustworthy to talk to. I pray that God, um, right now, that we would think seriously about your holiness and respond in submitting and trusting in your grace in light of our sinful nature. That we would love you and serve you all the days of our lives, Lord. That we would see that there's nothing better to live for than you, God. You are so holy. You are the Lord of hosts. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.